Pulp MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. You know a new view from inside the truck. X-Racer to Racer and Eye to Eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires and brought to you by Blenzall, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, and Fly Racing. Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I wanna say. A new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's industry seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires and brought to you by Blenzall, Plum Tree Funding, Works Connection, and Fly Racing. Welcome to Industry Seating. It is Sunday following the Atlanta Supercross. We also had the MXGP kick off their series today at Matterly Basin. So that was uh, pretty exciting to watch. So lots of racing going on to talk about. Uh, if, you're, if you're looking for drama, I think, I think this was a good weekend for you. We'll talk about all the stuff with Tomac and Barsha and Baggett and, and the like. Um, obviously, Roxon's big weekend. Chase Sexton, it was, it was a Honda sweep in Atlanta. I uh, want to talk about, you know, as I said, the MXGP series, we'll talk about some, some listener emails, answer a few questions. Obviously want to thank all the sponsors, uh, Pirelli tires leading that group off blends, all oils, plum Creek funding works connection. And we got a new one for this week, premier vapor blasting of Georgia. Those guys, uh, just coming on board for the first time today. So we'll talk about that. And of course, fly racing, but let's jump right into it. Your 250 class, another great race, another, you know, laps led by RJ Hampshire again, wasn't able to seal the deal. Uh, Chase Sexton, right as I'm watching this right now, just kind of blasted him out of the way again. And those two are, they're not making friends with each other. Luckily, they both stayed upright this week and, um, you know, they both were on the podium, but more contact between those two. And that's okay. I mean, I, I like the aggressiveness. Uh, I don't, love when people end up on the ground, but that didn't happen. And both of those two were able to, to keep themselves ahead of Shane McElrath in third. And obviously, uh, Steve Mathis, Pulp Mex bonus program paying out again. So good job to all those guys. But I thought it was a pretty big statement win for Sexton. He looked, uh, looked like he was in charge of this series and, you know, he's only got a five point lead. So not a huge deal as far as big picture, but he looks so much like a different guy this season than he did last year. Really, really impressive. And I, I have felt that way since really 
the first laps of the first practice going back to Tampa a few weeks ago. He's just he just looked matured. He looked like he has taken ownership of that number one plate that he won last year. And say what you want about you know the season last year with Forkner. Uh, this is 2020, and he has the number one plate, and he's acting like it belongs there. So great job by Sexton. He's come a long way, both uh, skill set, mentally and physically, in this 2020 season. Uh, McElrath, you know, not a bad night, but he did have some issues with his goggles. He got blasted by sand a couple times and uh, stated he couldn't really see too well. And, and I've been there. That's a tough situation. You get hit just in the wrong way, and your goggles either get dislodged or you get sand inside them. And, uh, you know, every jump you hit, there's sand floating up in the air, and it's really difficult to stay focused on what you're doing. So you saw him drop back a little bit, and he had to fend off Jeremy Martin there for a while. He was able to hang on to a podium, but you could tell he was pretty frustrated in his interviews. Uh, Basically just, you know, he knew he left some points on the table and things didn't go well. He didn't feel like he really rode to his potential either, and that's eh, all right. I mean, if, you're, if your bad nights are going to be a third in this class, that's probably going to pay dividends when it comes time to wrap this thing up in, in uh, Utah. So we'll see how this thing progresses, but I, I really, really like what I see from Sexton right now. It's, I really believe it's going to come down to he and McElrath. So, yeah, putting five points up on him this weekend certainly helps, but they seem to be the class of the field. And I think the podium more likely than not is going to be those two standing on the top two steps. So it's going to be a, a week to week thing between those two. We'll see how Daytona pans out. I, I kind of tend to think it favors Sexton a little bit more. I don't really have any evidence to to back that up. It seems like McElrath has been on, on the West coast for these events more times than not. Uh, but Sexton just seems like he's got everything going his way right now. He's certainly brimming with confidence and I just have a different feeling about him this year. Um, I don't want to say I was pessimistic about him last year. That's not really fair. I just didn't feel like he was this level last year. And uh, I, you know, I believe he and Justin Cooper kind of lucked into the scenario where they were vying for a championship uh, with Forkner's injury. But I don't feel that way at all this year. If Sexton wins it, it'll be because he absolutely deserved it, period. Uh, however he gets there. So... Great job from all those guys. Uh, RJ, I wrote in my notes, he is full send at all times. And that's okay. Um, that can pay dividends. You know, I, I think he'll have nights like Tampa where it doesn't pay off and he has a crash and it, it derails his result. But if it takes him going for it at this level to get a result, hey, that's better than the alternative, right? So this is definitely the best RJ Hampshire we've ever seen. Uh, the He's actually been somewhat consistent so far if you remove Tampa. Uh, I don't have him being necessarily a championship contender just because, like I said, I think you're going to see a few rough nights because he's taking big chances. Unfortunately, his big chances uh, really punished Jeremy Martin. You know, it didn't even punish RJ. It punished Martin with those uh, those tough blocks coming out on the track, and then you see J-Mart have this huge crash and ruined his night. But yeah, that's kind of normal in the 250 class. It's certainly the make, usually the more chaotic, I guess maybe the, the 450 class had something to say about that this weekend, but it's just, you know, a little bit less in experience. The, the motorcycles having less power force you to ride them a little bit harder and then things get a little bit hectic, but it was a great race and, and really in both classes. So 
250-wise, like I said, it'll, I think it's going to come down to a two-man race for this title. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. It's better than a runaway. It's better than some sort of dominant series where you almost know who's going to win before the gate drops. Moving to the 450s, I mean, wow. Like, that, that race had a little bit of everything. I'll start with Kenny Roxon because he deserves to be started with. Um, he was gone, you know, whole shot and was really unchallenged from the get-go. He, I think he went, wanted to make a statement. And, you know, we talk about it on these podcasts, whether it's this one or anything Steve Mathis is doing or any of the shows, any of the journalists are out there. I think everybody had a feeling that this run, this mid, mid-season stretch between Arlington, where Tomac won, going into Atlanta and then Daytona are rounds that typically favor Tomac. And if you're Ken Roxon or anyone in his camp or anyone with a, a vested interest in his success, you knew that it was a critical juncture over these next few weeks. Because if Tomac won, say he won Atlanta, He's going to be the odds-on favor to win Daytona. He could really put this series, I don't want to say away, but put everybody in a really, really tough spot because you, you spot Tomac 10, 12, 15 points, you know, with, with the, the remaining stretch where he's historically been dominant, that's a, that's a bad spot to be in, and he's going to only gain confidence in those scenarios. So I thought Kenny did a great job of completely flipping the script there. And now they, they're tied again, right? The, the series is tied and everything feels different. And I don't want to say Tomac's not the favorite to win the title anymore because I, I still have him winning this thing, but it doesn't feel the same. It absolutely does not feel the same as it did leaving Arlington where it just felt like the, you know, Tomac had all this, this momentum and was riding this wave of confidence. Well, Tomac's got trouble on the horizon. He's got a lot of pissed off people uh, that he's got to face week in and week out upcoming. And we'll see how that all plays out. You know, maybe it's no big deal and he goes and dominates Daytona and we don't have much to talk about on that front. But if you're Tomac, you're really looking to just have smooth weekends. You don't want to get in confrontations. You don't want to have to battle from the back. You certainly don't want to be on the ground. And he did all those things this weekend. He renewed a rivalry, and there's a lot of anger between he and Justin Barsha right now. He renewed a rivalry between he and Blake Baggett, and Blake Baggett is really upset with Eli. Uh, I haven't seen Blake upset very often, or, or let's just say mad very often. He was genuinely pissed off Saturday night. So maybe those uh, emotions calm down throughout the week, and maybe they don't even see each other during the main event in Daytona. But I'm going to tell you right now, if, if Baggett gets an opportunity to go after Eli, you can count on it. He absolutely feels like he owes Eli one. And I think at this point, Eli is the one with everything to lose. Blake really doesn't. His season has been tumultuous. He's had a lot of ups and downs. And points-wise, you know, he's, what, 11th in points? There's not a whole lot that can be screwed up at this point. So I think he's going to try to win races. But if he gets a chance to ruin Eli's day along the way too, that's going to be an interesting thing to watch because I think he's going to, I think he's going to absolutely make the most of that opportunity. And, uh, I just don't think he's in any mood to see Eli win a championship or even succeed right now. So just something to keep an eye on. I'm sure that's pretty obvious. 
but just being in that truck after the race, there were, there were a lot of hard feelings leaving Atlanta. Uh, I know that Tomac tried to make amends after the race, but Blake was long gone. Blake had already headed to the hotel. They obviously have a, a baby and, um, yeah, don't want to make the, the nights any longer than they have to. So I don't know if there was any conversation or, or Eli tried to reach out post that, but he definitely did try to after the, the main event specifically. Uh, as far as the rest of the field, touched on Barsha a little bit. He had a great ride, got all the way up to second. Uh, he was he and Eli were just going back and forth, just tagging each other, and then Eli hit the ground. Uh, but I, I thought Barsha rode really, really well. He's still in this thing. He's 23 points down. This is by far his best season maybe ever in the 450 class. Uh, I don't know of a time where he was this close to the points lead this far into the series. And maybe I'm just, I might be just missing a year altogether, but I don't remember it anyway. So kudos to him. I've been, uh, I, I struggle with pessimistic. I've been hesitant to consider him a series champion contender, but he's kind of proven me wrong and he's hanging around right second this weekend was great. He's ahead of Cooper Webb by a point. I mean, that's saying something right now. And we've been, you know, we've all been riding this Cooper Webb, Cooper Webb bandwagon. So give Justin Barsha some credit. And I'll be the first to say that he is surpassing my expectations and I should have been, uh, I should have been more forthcoming with credit for Barsha. So I'm, I'm not going to make that mistake again. Great job by him. Third place on the night was Cooper Webb. And what a ride from Webb. I mean, this was a guy that if you go back oh, just a week ago, he could barely walk. I saw him at the airport and he was, he did look better than I expected, as I mentioned last week, but he was not in a good place. I mean, bruised, beaten. We all saw the huge crash where we felt him, him, him lucky to be leaving and not going to the hospital. So if you're Webb and you're sitting in the mule with the uh, Alpine Stars medical team last Saturday night in Arlington and someone offers you a third place the following weekend in Atlanta, regardless of whatever scenario that had to be there, I think he would take that, right? I think he would absolutely sign up for that in that moment, no questions asked. So if you look at it that way, it w- Atlanta was a huge success. He kept himself in the championship. He beat Eli Tomac, right? That's a huge step. As you, you took points out of the championship points leader, and maybe you lost points overall. You know, it went from 16 to 24 for Webb. So that's, a, I guess, ultimately a negative, but... He did beat the guy that had the red plate going in. So you got to look for silver linings in these scenarios. It was never going to be perfect. You knew he was sore. I could see it in his riding. He didn't really want to seat bounce or hit certain sections a certain way. You could just tell he was his body was beat up, and uh, maybe you can deal with the pain, but it's almost a subconscious reaction at times you see a big impact coming or you could just power through a section, but you look more to finesse your way through just because your body's screaming at you the whole time to, you know, kind of go easy, (laughs) go easy here. I'm, I'm hurting. So to get third, to pass Davos on the last lap, to hold off Tomac, those were all just hero status type things. So great job from Webb and, uh, he deserves, uh, a slow clap from everybody because he's he's proving how tough that kid is and 
I've always been just neutral with Webb. I've hung out with him plenty of times outside of races and I've had a great time with him and we've always been cool, but I didn't, I wasn't ever really drinking the Kool-Aid. He was just another guy. Uh, he's really earned my respect this year. Should have been last year, but this year more specifically, um, the things he's been through and just the fight that kid has, he's, he's tough. He, he's really, um, like I said, earning my respect, which doesn't mean anything. It's just, you know, how each of us view these certain riders. We all have our opinions and, uh, mine has certainly changed over the course of the season. So great job from him getting back to Tomac, uh, fourth place, but I don't like the way that night looked. Uh, he does deserve a mention for how well he fought back. I mean, he, he crashed with Baggett. We talked about that a little bit. I mean, he just straight up cleaned Baggett out. So he gets up and he's got to fight back to salvage something. Then he stalls his bike again. And I'm just like, oh boy, here comes the meltdown. And he didn't, he, he rallied, he fought back. He had to just be freaking out inside his helmet, mentally just wanting to implode. And he fought through it and he almost got back to the podium. His pace was great. He rode really, really well, but big picture. I just don't think you can do the things the way he's going about it, right? You can't panic and go for a takeout on Baggett because you're not moving up quickly enough. And and in my opinion, that's exactly what he did. The track was incredibly hard to pass on. And I think it wasn't coming quickly. The passes weren't happening and he could see Roxon just, just disappearing, right? Roxon was just gone. So he panicked and he's like, I have to go now. He was late trying to block pass on Baggett. He did not have the right entry angle to make that block pass stick. And when you're late, contact gets a lot heavier than you probably want. And both of you end up in a heap. Baggett was super pissed. You see the, the shove from Baggett there because he Baggett knows like you didn't have the angle, right? You had, you came in late and then all there was to do was run into the side of me and both of us are going to go down. So to me, that was, uh, Eli being impatient with the way the race was going and just forcing the issue more than anything. And he should know better. I'm sure he would love to take that move back. It cost him a a sure podium. I mean, he's definitely getting on the podium if he doesn't crash there with the way he was riding later in that race. And as the track deteriorated, but I I do think it should be said as many bad things that went on for Tomac, if you're going to have a just disastrous race, like it was, and you still end up fourth, I think he would take that because races like that in the past have either been like a 12th, like Arlington 2019, or they've been a total DNF, you know, crash out, hurt yourself, you know, type scenario, which just can't happen if you're going to be the, the 2020 champ. So lots of talking points for Tomac. I'm sure they would like to just turn the page and he'll probably send uh, gift baskets to Barsha and, and Baggett this week. Obviously kidding on that, but I think there has to be something said for not creating enemies on these championship runs. And I I've made mention of that, whether it's in articles or on other shows, I don't think there's anything to be gained from people wanting to take shots at you. And now he has two guys, Barsha and Baggett going down the stretch here where if they get a chance and, and I would lump Jason Anderson into that pack too, because Anderson is, they, they've run it, had run-ins already this season. And I think Anderson would love to take another shot at Eli down the stretch here too. So he has several people that if he leaves the inside open at any time, they're going to, they're going to make a run. And I don't think Webb has that going. And I know Kenny doesn't really have that going because 
Kenny doesn't really ride dirty with anybody. Kenny's probably the cleanest rider uh, in the field. So just one more thing Eli's going to have to be worried about. Um, the easy way to, to not have to deal with that is get the whole shot like he did in the heat race and run away. You can't start 12th and make life that much harder. That was the genesis of all of the problems. And we talk about that. We've talked about that in Eli's whole career. He gets bad starts. And then the opportunity for things to go sideways is much, much higher. Your percentage chance for just drama and chaos and crashes goes way up if you're in the middle of the pack or in the back versus getting out clean like Roxon did and just doing your thing. So that's not breaking news. That's very, very obvious, but it's still a problem. It's still a problem for Tomac putting himself in negative situations and then everything unravels from there. So we'll just see how it goes from uh, down the stretch. But before we get into uh, the power rankings for the 450 class, I want to talk about sponsors a little bit. So as we said, the MXGP kicked off for uh, for everybody in the Eurozone, as they were. They were in England. Pirelli Tires won both classes today. Uh, Jeffrey Hurlings and uh, Yago Geertz, both Pirelli Tires equipped. They both won, so great job for them. Uh, they're obviously very involved in the world Superbike. They had, uh, their series kickoff in Phillips Island in Australia this, this weekend too. So Pirelli getting involved all over the globe and, uh, obviously Jimmy Dakotas holding it down strong for the, the Pirelli side of American Supercross. So thanks to them, Blenzo oils, they have a bunch of events upcoming. They have the, the vintage Supercross that a lot of the, the two strokes out there will be, Using Blenzol products, or if you're smart, you will be anyway. Uh, they will have Michael Essie at the Day in the Dirt South just after the Daytona Supercross. He will be at the uh, the World Two Stroke uh, Championships that are at Glen Helen too. So they are expanding riders and involvement daily. So I've just kind of been been watching on the sidelines, and uh, David Schwash and those guys over there are getting heavily involved. So check them out at blendsall.com. You can buy blendsall at your local WPS dealer as well. Plum Creek funding, my buddy Zach over there. We've been going back and forth on, uh, the saga that is Ken rocks in this season. He's a big Kenny fan for good reason. Ken is awesome. Really, really good dude. And you know, he's been claiming that Roxon's going to get back on top here. And he certainly did this weekend. He went out and got it done on a track where I have seen Kenny be hesitant on tracks that are breaking down, getting ruddy, and you have to take some chances to, to push that pace. Kenny stepped up and fought, I think, what are you know some, some inner demons he's dealing with, just all the injuries and, and the rough years he's had in the past, and he just checked out on everybody. He put in laps that nobody else could touch and got the 26 points and tied himself back up for the points lead. So as far as Plum Creek funding goes, they are, uh, they're licensed in California, Nevada, and Colorado. And if you're in the market for a house, uh, just reach out to Zach Plum Creek funding. Uh, you can reach out to me and I'll get you a cell phone, but I think it's cool just to have a person that can steer you in the right direction, just to see what your options are. You don't have to buy a house tomorrow. I've actually been, uh, contemplating buying something here in Idaho tell you what, if the stock market keeps going the way it's going, maybe I'll, maybe something I want will be back in my price range. But, um, I just love the fact that I can have somebody that's, that it's an expert in this field. That's a moto guy that I can get my questions answered. So get a hold of Zach over there at Plum Creek funding. 
uh, works connection. Eric Phipps and the boys over there, uh, as I've mentioned the last few weeks, they have a little bit of everything, right? I, I think for most people, the first thing you're going to think of is the frame guards that kind of put them on the map. I know I use them for years, but their pro launch start device is something that if you're a racer, you have no chance of getting a good start without some sort of starting device. And worst connection has been in that game for a very long time. They have it figured out that their version of this starting device, a pro launch has been around since 2012. So, uh, go check out worksconnection.com. They have lots of different knickknack parts that just going to make your ride a little bit cooler. And probably I think, I think up your resale value too, um, just to protect your bike a little bit. Last but not least, premier vapor blasting of Georgia. And, uh, it's my buddy, Brandon Coker, and he has a company. They take, uh, basically old parts, whether it's boots, it could be riding, riding boots, or, you know, they have a bunch of stuff on their Instagram subframes, uh, you know, linkage parts, all kinds of stuff. And if it looks a little worse for wear, send it to those guys. They're located in Georgia and they absolutely make that thing look like new. I was just checking out their Instagram today and it's premier vapor blasting of Georgia. Check it out. It's easily searchable on Instagram and you will be blown away at the transformation that they can make on literally everything and anything. Uh, the, the hard parts were the most impressive to me. They literally look brand new when they're done with them. So give those guys a look. Uh, I know there's a lot of people right now that are choosing to, uh, just basically renovate their bikes and buy new stuff and new parts or fix the old parts on their bikes instead of buying new bikes because you know, motorcycles are $10,000 now. So that's not a new concept. So great idea from Brandon and those guys to, to make your bike look like new, even if it's not last but not least fly racing. What more can I say? Uh, the science of supercross, the formula helmet was the feature this weekend. If you saw that, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I thought the piece was awesome. Just gets into a, a little bit more, an in-depth look of the science behind that helmet. And it's so technologically advanced that Rion material that's in the formula helmet is it's revolutionary. I mean, there is absolutely nothing like it on the market. And, you know, something that was developed for a completely different industry and use, it was in its purest form, it was developed to protect soldiers and military, uh, personnel for, for English, uh, by the English government. They, they gave Dr. Dan plan a grant to go create this material to keep their military and police safe. Well, that got transformed and optimized for motocross protection. And that's really where fly racing has taken it to the next level. And that formula helmet is the first of many projects that you'll see with that Rion material. So check out flyracing.com at fly racing USA, social media. All right. Okay. Let's get back into some racing stuff. I appreciate your patience with the sponsors, but that stuff's super important. And I want to do the absolute best job I can to, to spread their message and, get you guys connected with companies that I truly believe in and I'm willing to put my name on as well. So your, well, I guess my, uh, power ranking for this week. Uh, number 10 is Dean Wilson. And I believe this is his first week inside the uh, industry seating power ranking. I, I know he'll be reaching out to me to thank me. Just kidding. Sarcasm alert. Uh, but Dean's been coming around he's 10th in points. He passed Baggett in points this weekend. And, you know, he got caught up in the crash with Anderson and Freezy there, but his riding is getting much, much better. 
you know, he got sixth at, uh, at Tampa and he, he's just coming and coming and coming. Like the fitness is getting better. His confidence is growing. So I'm a huge Dean fan. I've watched him ride for a very long time and I've, I have very close friends that are in his camp. And, um, yeah, so glad to see him improving and staying healthy. Blake Baggett, I have a nine and yeah, he's, this is a tough one. I almost, I almost pulled him out of the top 10, but if you look at his season, he's 11th in points. His speed is there, right? He couldn't help getting taken out by Tomac. He does have a podium on the season, which weighs pretty heavily on the, uh, on the power ranking for me, but results wise, it really hasn't been happening so much for Blake. So Daytona is a, a good opportunity. He's always great at Daytona. And I know he's had this Daytona round circled all season long. So hopefully he can turn it around and, uh, put that Rocky mountain KTM WPS, which I guess I could just name off all the sponsors, but KTM up on the podium at Daytona next up, Justin Brayton, you know, he had a weird race. Um, it wasn't awesome. He obviously is coming off a horrific race in Arlington. He gets 12th on the night, but it's kind of just been that way all year. He hasn't been flashy other than a one. He ran up there forever, but it's been that seven to 12 kind of finish all year for Brayton. I don't think he was thrilled with how his main event went, uh, this weekend in Atlanta, but I have him at eight just because of the consistency factor. And he's kind of been there week in and week out. Uh, obviously one Daytona here a couple years ago. So I don't expect him to replicate that level of performance. That was kind of an outlier. You don't really, well, I <laughs> shouldn't say that, but I don't necess- necessitate Justin Brayton and Daytona really jiving all the time, but maybe he proves me wrong. Maybe he comes out and has a, a Renaissance performance at Daytona. Like we saw a couple years ago, Mookie, I have at seven and again, quiet, quiet night for Mookie. <laughs> I'm sure he got sick of seeing Eli Tomac because every time Eli would screw up, he was back and forth with, with Mookie, but, uh, just really wasn't in the fight. You know, he was running around in the top 10, but didn't have the pace of the the top few and was trying to catch, uh, Aaron Plessinger there at the end. Wasn't able to, but just another quiet, but solid night for Mookie. Nothing wrong with it. This season is fine. Nothing. I don't want this to come off as a negative because it's not. I just like to see the flashy Mookie. I like to see the things that Mookie can do that most people can't. And as I've said all season, maybe that comes with injury and maybe he doesn't want to hurt himself. And there, there is nothing uh, wrong with that. I don't blame him in the least, uh, but it's just interesting. It's something I didn't expect. I thought we would see the Mookie that still sends it, and we haven't seen that very often this year. Up next, I have Justin Hill at six, and I don't want to come off as negative for Justin Hill, but I really felt like he could have – gotten on the podium this weekend. I thought when he looked up and he saw Davalos in front of him and he knew a podium was in sight, he saw, he knew all the drama was going on with Tomac and Baggett and you, you hear the crowd going crazy and you're, you're constantly assessing the situation around you in these main events. And I know in his mind, he felt like a podium was in the cards and it just, he just wasn't able to make it happen. Davalos was able to get away from him and I don't know if he got tired. He looked like he was a little bit tired. Um, he did help hold on to a sixth place. So that's a still a, a really, really good finish. And I, I'm sure the Motocons, uh, Bullfrog Spa's smart top Moto Concepts team would take a sixth. 
I just felt like he left, he left one out there. And when a podium is in play, you have to make the most of it. And he just wasn't able to. So take the good with the bad. Sixth place is still good, right? The bad is maybe you could have got a podium, uh, but he's healthy. He's moving forward. And, uh, they have, you know, they'll have those guys in the top 10 at one point, he freezy and Mookie were all battling for a top five. So, uh, nothing wrong with that in your fifth spot. I have Jason Anderson and he's been hovering around this fifth spot. Most of the season, not a bad night, but he got piled up in that crash with freezy and that pretty much screwed up any chance, you know, for him to keep moving forward. He was in the battle with Eli for a little while. Nothing wrong with this night, but yeah, anytime you get into a pileup, it's going to be very, very difficult to to battle for a podium. Ahead of Anderson, I have Barsha, and he's third in points, but I have him fourth on my power ranking, and only because the top three are just so hard to crack, right? You know who the top three are going to be between Webb, Roxon, and Tomac. So that's a really difficult dynamic to get in front of. But I tell you what, if, if Barsha keeps racking up podiums, he's going to force my hand to heavily consider him to get into uh, the top three. But again, great ride from Barsha. Second place is an awesome finish for him. He's third in points halfway through the season. Um, so yeah, I don't have anything negative to say about Barsha. Good job by him. Third place is Cooper Webb. 24 points down. He's fourth in the points, but we all know the, uh, the just situation he was dealing with going into Atlanta after his huge get off in Arlington. I thought it, he showed the heart of a champion and that's such a cliche term, but I think it rings true in this case. He did everything you could possibly do to keep himself relevant in this series. I mean, he, he was going for it at the end of the race. There was, there was no sign that he really was injured at all. I mean, at least at the end of the race, maybe at the beginning you could tell he was being a little bit conservative and he wasn't able to push like he wanted to. But at the end of the race, I think he left it all on the table. And if it comes down to him having a chance to win this title, as we roll into Vegas and Utah, I think you're going to be able, you're going to look back at nights like Atlanta and it's absolutely going to be the reason that he's in this thing. So great job by him. Great. Um, trying to think of the right phrase I want to use here. Um, he just overcomes adversity when anytime it's in his face, right? Anytime the, the, the going gets tough, he's just able to, to rise up and overcome and face this stuff head on. So, um, great job by him. And I hope he can stay in this thing down the stretch. I'd love to see him rack up some wins and make this thing a, a three man fight. And even Barsha, maybe a four man fight as we head into the, you know, let's say the four final four or five rounds. Second, I have Tomac. He's tied for the points lead, but I have to give, uh, I have to take the number one spot away from him after, you know, his fourth place and crashing and all the drama he went through this weekend and obviously handing the momentum back to Roxon. So not a terrible night, but I mean, there's no way you can say it was ideal by any means. So, um, yeah, second place for Tomac and, uh, he will have co red plates rolling into Daytona. Your number one guy, Ken Roxon, got the number one spot back, dominant win, and I mean dominant win in Atlanta. Everything went his way. Uh, just, just the day you would draw up from time qualifying to his heat race to the main event, it just all came together for Kenny, and he was really untouched all day. So, good job from him. I think everybody out there has a soft spot for Kenny. Watching his 
you know, the tribulations of the last few years and the comeback story that Ken Roxon is, it's hard not to be a Kenny fan. So good job from him. And, uh, yeah, I'm just thankful more than anything to have a true championship battle. And we're only halfway through this thing. So that's your, uh, that's your power ranking, leaving Atlanta, heading towards Daytona. And as Ricky Carmichael would say, the series doesn't even start till Daytona. So what are we going to see moving forward? Anybody's guess, but I truly think it's still wide open. I think Webb is going to make some noise before this thing's over, but he does have a 24-point gap, you know, that 24-point that pond of points he's got to cross. So we'll see if he's able to do that. I don't know that it's really going to happen between two guys, right? If it was one guy, if he's 24 points down on Roxon or Tomac, all it takes is one bad night and you can get back in this thing. One DNF, one big crash. But with two guys, it gets really challenging. Uh, you really need everything to go your way. And so I, I don't know that it's it's going to happen for Webb this year, but I do think he's going to win races still as we uh, we head on towards the, uh, the finale, finale in, in Utah this year. So let's talk about MXGP a little bit, switch gears. So MXGP kicks off, and if any of you are watching, you saw the, uh, the horrible weather that they got leading up to the race. It destroyed one of their structures called the Skybox. There's a big terrace that goes behind the starting gate, and it, it's pretty awesome. You can stand behind it and get a really great view of the start. It's one of the areas they stick uh, you know, industry VIPs and uh, people that you can actually bypass us to it as well. Well, that thing is a, just a hunk of metal now that's totally destroyed. And I'm sure that was a very expensive storm that rolled through there, uh, in early stages of the weekend. That was, <laughs> I don't want to say I laughed because it wasn't funny, but I was just thankful for that. Nobody was actually on that structure because that would have been catastrophic had that storm rolled in and anybody been on top of that thing. So, uh, having watched the race today, I thought the track crew and, uh, Steve Dixon is the promoter there. They did a fantastic job of salvaging that race because just, cataclysmic storms. And if you remember motocross the nations there, uh, from what th- it'll be going on three years ago, just brutal. I walked around in mud up to my ankles all weekend long. And I was so sick of my feet being wet. By the time I left there, I was just fed up. I literally wanted to leave early and that could have been this weekend again, but they did a great job. Luckily the sun came out, which helped a ton, but it still rained throughout, even on Sunday, it rained some, but they did a great job to make the racetrack. I thought it was not, maybe not ideal, but pretty awesome. You know, ruddy. Yes. Technical. Yes. Sketchy probably, but still pretty good. And we saw just fantastic racing from all the guys. You know, the only tough part of the weekend was, you know, we're sitting here on March 1st and you have a GP in England, you know, pretty far North. And it's really early in the, you know, the, season here as far as time zones and uh you know we're not back to daylight savings yet so the sun was going down is the trying to the point i'm trying to make and if you watch that last mxgp moto those guys couldn't see anything and when hurlings came off the track you know he was telling anyone and everyone about how bad it was he was visually frustrated with the conditions and I, i think that's why you saw him riding so carefully in that second moto you know he basically just made sure that caroli couldn't catch him but he didn't want anything to do with going after Geiser. And I think that probably frustrated him because he doesn't want to give away points or confidence to Geiser. But at the same time, he couldn't probably see because of the shadows either 
the sun's in your, there's such a glare. And then the shadows are over the sides of the ruts because just to explain the sun is very low in the sky, right? They're, they're way up North. They're in Europe. So the sun is low in the sky across the horizon. What that does is as the sun comes horizontally instead of vertically, right? The sun is not directly beaming down. It's coming across and that's just casting a big shadow across the ruts. So as you're coming into the turn in that change of, you know, the light perspective, your eyes are having a hard time adjusting because you're going from shadow to, you know, in between the trees, you're constantly having to adjust to the light. And then there's a shadow across the rut. So you see part of the rut, but then the bottom of it's shadowed over. So you really can't see. And it's just really unnerving as a rider to not be able to see very well. Um, you're, you're making a lot of assumptions about if, is there a bump there? Is there not you, your depth perception really starts to suffer, uh, with the constant adjustment in light. And it's just not very much fun. Uh, those guys are going insanely fast as you can probably imagine, uh, watching a guy like Jeffrey Hurlings and to not really know if you're able, if the bump is there or how deep the rut is or any of those things as you're coming up to them that fast is, is scary. So when you see guys as talented and as skilled as those guys complaining about conditions, you know, something was up. So it's just part of this part of the deal. We haven't really had MXGP in Europe this early in the season, in a very long time, right? If you'll remember, we've been in, uh, Qatar or Qatar, however you want to say it, or we've been in Argentina or we've been all these places where we haven't dealt with this exact scenario. And so we haven't really had to worry about the time changes or the timetables being really late in the day, but we certainly did today. Uh, but didn't seem like Tim Geiser had a problem with it. He freaking dominated those guys in that second moto. I mean, he was like 25 seconds out front at one point, but you got to think Hurlings was just being smart. He knew he had the overall in the bag and he was just marking Cairoli behind him and, and bringing this thing home. So that was your podium, uh, guys, or excuse me, Hurlings, Geiser and Cairoli top three and somewhat to be expected. I, I think that's a fairly predictable podium from, from MXGP for the first weekend. I think Hurlings did a great job of playing it smart and not letting his ego get the best of him in that second moto, because that's always been an issue with him as he thinks he should win every single moto every time he's out there. And I'm not going to be someone who says he shouldn't, but you have to realize that at times just take the second place. You've got the overall win and let's move on to Vulcan Sward. And that's what he did. He's, he's getting older. He's getting more mature. And that was, uh, that was pretty interesting to see. And it's probably not a welcome sight for, you know, his, his championship competition, because I think if you're uh Geiser or Cairoli or anybody that you want to insert into the championship mix, you have to count on Hurlings throwing a few races away. If you're seriously wanting to be a, in the title fight. I don't think these guys really think heads up. They're going to beat Hurlings often. Maybe Geiser would, would argue that, but that's just my, that's just my opinion. I think most weekends they realize Hurlings is going to be the best guy, but he's also going to have a tendency to toss it and give you a bunch of points or even hurt himself and throw the championship away completely. And, and history tells us that's what's happened. So talking to a few guys today, uh, my buddies, you know, Paul Parabinos and Dan Truman and these guys. And we were all kind of concluding that if Hurlings is going to approach it as smartly as he did that second moto, these guys are in big, big trouble because that's always 
really been the only opportunity anybody's ever had, whether it's MXGP or MX2, is Hurling's, you know, giving up 20, 30, 50 points on a given weekend. As we move into Valkensward, uh, I think it'll be the Jeffrey Hurling show. I think he'll absolutely dominate at his home GP next weekend. I don't think those guys will have anything for him. Maybe Koldenhoff shows up. You know, Koldenhoff was, was decent today. But same old story for Glenn is he gives up a ton of points at the beginning of the series. And by the time he finds his his best form, he's down 50, 70, 80 points. And he's not really a championship contender anymore. So he really needs to get on the podium next weekend when they, uh, you know, go back to the Netherlands and, and make it happen. He's got, if he wants to be in the title fight, which that's a controversial thing is, uh, listening to Lewis Phillips. He was basically saying he doesn't think Glenn will be, if he wants to now is the time you've got to make yourself, you've got to assert yourself and be there now. Who else? Uh, Yamaha guys, um, you know, Paul Ann, um, I thought Jeremy Seward did an incredible job in that first moto. He was rock solid, bringing home a second place. Second moto was okay. Um, I don't, I don't have him as a, a championship guy, so not you know really that shocking to see the the second moto get away from him a little bit. Uh, but good job from those guys. Um, it was unfortunate to see Febra not be able to ride, hurt his knee. I don't know the full extent of the injury, but it was bad enough that he wasn't able to race on Sunday. So that sucks. Tough start to the season. He's making the switch over to the uh, Monster Energy Kawasaki, the KRT guys over there. So that's a bummer. He obviously loses all those points, and even more seriously, you know, a knee injury to start the year could uh, could be something he has to deal with all season. Hopefully. He's not going to need any kind of surgery that really will derail his series. It was good to see Clement de Sal back. Pretty solid day from him. He's still working through that big injury he suffered in Russia last year. Uh, so I don't think he's necessarily at 100% yet. And that's a lot of these guys. Uh, Cairoli's not at 100% yet. And um, it's just tough. These guys are going to give away a lot of points if they're not careful early in the season. But that's just how injuries work, right? You you have such a long season. I mean, the series starts right now, right? First round today, and they don't finish until late September. So that's a really long season and they don't have a ton of time. If anything goes wrong that they can go have surgery and get things fixed. It just really cuts down on their recovery time to, uh, to be healed up for the new season. So, um, trying to think of any other notable guys that I, uh, Saw, obviously, Paul's Jonas had a horrible day. Um, don't know exactly what's up with his shoulder, but he went to get checked out, DNF that second moto. I thought Mitch Evans was one of the biggest stories of the day. That first moto, when he was, he reeled in hurlings and was like looking a little frisky there, like he wanted a little, a piece of the bullet. That was, uh, that was eye-opening. I mean, we all saw his Mantova ride where he went out and, and won the final series passing his teammate, Tim Geiser. So it wasn't shocking to see him go fast, but I didn't expect that level from him in the first moto. So great job from him. He really, I think, made his case. You know, there, there were some who was thinking that maybe Vlanderen should have gotten the opportunity to move up onto the 450 since he was already on that team. I think uh, Mitch Evans quieted all of those people. I don't think you can ever question HR, uh, you know, Honda HRC's decision after the way Mitch Evans showed up both in the preseason and today. 
anybody else? Uh, Justin Conus, not a great day. Um, just really just struggles for the, that ice one team. Um, what else? Uh, let's talk about MX two a little bit. I don't know what to tell you about <laughs> that Red Bull KTM team. I don't, it's unreal. Like their bike has to be so good. You watch them on the start and, and no, they didn't win the overall, but if you watch them in that second moto, they just are just killing everybody. And yes, Yago had a huge crash and Yago was your overall winner. But to me, I was just more blown away that you have a guy in, uh, Vial that was two years ago. He was ninth place in EMX 250, not relevant at all. I mean, it just, and also ran an EMX 250, right? Red Bull KTM steps up, puts him on the, the premier MX2 team alongside, you know, legendary MX2 rider Jorge Prado. He goes out there and is battling for wins in his rookie season. A year later, I mean, he looks like he may be, you know, the, the man to beat. And, and I say that knowing Yago Geertz won the overall, but Vial looked fantastic this weekend. He probably should have went one, one. He had like a 17 second lead when he crashed in the first moto. So Vial to me, I think is going to be there more times than not. And with his starts, I think he's going to put himself in position to battle for this championship. Then second, you have virtual unknown for especially many stateside Renee Hofer who goes out there and he was the big question. Mike is like, you know, can KTM continue this? Just what seemingly is just, they pick whoever and they just put them on, on their bike and they go out there and podium and yep, sure did. Hofer goes out there, leads most of the second moto ends up second in the, I mean, it's just unreal. I, I don't know what to make of it. I don't know how they are so dominant in the class. I'm just going to attribute it to their bike being that much better than everybody else program and bike being that much far ahead of everybody else's program. Cause what else can you point to? They're not going out and hiring quote unquote best guys. They're not poaching the best riders from other teams or doing anything of the sort. They're just picking what seems like random guys, putting them on, on their team and going out and dominating the series. So we'll see how this all, you know, transpires. I know I'm jumping the gun a little bit there as Yago Geertz on his Monster Energy Yamaha won the overall, but I'm I am I'm speechless with the whole Red Bull KTM team. Uh, to give Yago credit, uh, I they are on a different engine package this year. They uh, I don't know if it's exactly the same thing that Star Yamaha Monster Star Yamaha used in the U.S., but I know it's very close. They do use a, a few different. Uh, components to their electronics and uh, just different parts to the bike. But the overall package, I think, is very similar to what the the star guys are using in the U.S. And we all know how potent that engine package is. So maybe that was the difference for Yago today. Uh, he was great, you know, all day. If he doesn't crash in that second moto, maybe he's even further up. He was able to, to battle back and salvage a, a fourth in that second moto and good enough for the overall but this, the inconsistency is really what bit him last year. So he's going to have to clean that up. He's going to have to stay off the ground and he's going to have to make sure he's up there on the starts because I have a feeling you're going to see Vial for sure. And you're going to see Hofer up there more times than not on the start too. Thomas Kier Olsen, I think was many, many had him pegged as the series favorite. You know, he's been the runner up and consistency has really been the secret for, for TKO. 
He had a huge crash on Saturday. Luckily, he didn't hurt himself. And not a bad result, um, you know, on Sunday to get the series started. But he really wasn't in the the race to win anything. So I don't know how you view it if you're him. I guess you just rack it up as a, a solid start to the season. And you know that there's going to be a lot of just chaos in the MX2 class. There always is. And if you play your cards right, you don't have a Jorge Prado to deal with anymore. And that's always been good enough to beat everybody else but Prado. So maybe you just, you just, you know, go exactly with that same strategy. Try to be on the podium every single weekend. Try not to leave a lot of points out there for these other guys to capitalize on. But you also have to be mindful that these younger kids, you know, Vial's in his second season. He looks better. Geertz looks like he's primed and ready to make a championship run. So you're going to have to put some wins in there too. You can't just sit back and expect podiums to be good enough. You're going to have to win. And you always wonder with TKO, his size, he is a big dude, super tall. I mean, lean, but really, really tall. And it seems like that hurts him on the start. So I don't know that there's really an answer for that. Just one of those things he's going to have to deal with week in and week out and make sure he has his technique absolutely dialed because he knows he's giving up a little bit of the the power to weight that a guy like Vial, who is tiny, right, super light and not very tall at all, he's giving up you know, that power to weight advantage on the start. And especially on the super deep starts, you're going to see that be even more difficult. So, uh, just another something to watch. And when, you know, when Olsen does finally move up to the far 50, doesn't matter anymore. The, there's so much power on these bikes. It, it kind of goes away, but on the 250, it's certainly something I guarantee you he worries about and, and his team has to just cope with. There's no easy answer for it, but yeah, that's kind of how I see the MX two class going. I thought Boisrame rode really, really well in the first moto. Um, but I, I think it's going to come down to, you know, consistency and these guys just maturing on the fly. You know, you're dealing with kids in this MX2 class. And, you know, they had the, the under 23 age rule. So most of these guys aren't going to have a lot of confidence. They're always going to be running into scenarios they haven't faced and they're going to be riding tracks they haven't ridden and on these flyaway events, you know, that's, that's going to be a, a new dynamic they haven't faced before. So watch for all these things. A guy like Hofer, how does he learn as this series goes? Does Vial take a huge step having gone through all of this and watching Prado, you know, win all these races last year? I'm sure he, he picked up on a lot of the tricks that, that Prado had. And, um, I think also watch for Geertz to see if he can, one, if he can win the sand races where he's going to be, I think, the favorite. I think he'll be the most skilled and the most talented in these sand races. And then can he eliminate the inconsistency that plagued him at a lot of the hard pack tracks and then just random off weekends where he would crash or have some sort of big problem that cost him a boatload of points. But I tell you what, I was really impressed with the level of both MX2 and MXGP. I don't know what to make of it. Uh, I, I really think it just comes down to the American guys riding supercross for basically eight months and only riding motocross for four months. And, uh, you know, the, the guys in Europe are riding motocross year round. So I think if you, it's it just common sense to me, if you ride motocross all year round and that's all you're focused on, you're going to get better at motocross. And if you ride supercross 75% of the year, you're going to get better at supercross and, uh, you know, it's a tough pill to swallow at these motocross nations events. And we've seen hurlings come over and 
I don't want to say dominated Indiana, but he seemed like he was a lot faster than everybody at Indiana. I just think it's one of those things where our focus is not on motocross as much as those guys. And we're seeing that bear out in their skill set versus our skill set. And if we want to hold a supercross of nations, guess what? America is going to beat them down. But unfortunately, the race that comes up in September that I'll be flying over for in France, motocross of nations, that's a motocross race. So it's just, it is what it is. I don't see anything changing anytime soon. Um, but it does speak to the level that those guys are at. Uh, I think those guys have taken a lot of heat over the years for just not being on America's level. If you're going back to the nineties and early two thousands, that's not the case anymore. And, uh, they have a really professional series and they've really got their, their stuff together and they, uh, they deserve a lot of credit for upping their game. I really enjoy watching them. The, the way they can ride those super technical tracks, you know, if you, if you watch Matterly this weekend, you could see how ruddy it was. And the ruts are, they're halfway down the straightaway. That's so difficult to ride. And you see those guys standing up all the way through the rut. That's an acquired skill. And if you watch the tracks in America, they're much more manicured. They look like a lot more fun to ride. I think it's, uh, it's not a bad thing. It's just different. And those guys are honing their skill set on those really technical, very demanding tracks. So when America goes over and has to ride on their soil on a track like Erne or wherever, right? Teutschenthal in Germany or wherever the, the motocross nations happen to be each year, we're going into their domain and we're, you know, we're succumbing to a superior skill set they have on those tracks. Redbud was the same thing in 2018. It rained all weekend, so it fell right into their hands again. You ran into adverse conditions that they ride all the time. We never see that stuff. If it's muddy in the U.S. on a practice day, our guys usually go home or they practice starts or practice turns. They wouldn't get into – they wouldn't be going out and doing motos on a full, just muddy, terrible track. I I really believe that. Um, That's just a difference in situation, right? We could just wait till the next day and have good weather. Those guys are probably going to face the same crappy weather the next day too. So they just got to go ride in it. And they also know that there's a very good chance that they're going to have to race in a really crappy, muddy, rainy, cold, snowy weekend or multiple weekends, right? We've already had one in Matterly going into Valkensward. Weather probably won't be great. You're going into the Netherlands in March. Guess what? It rains a lot there. So they're probably going to face more, you know, muddy, mucky, deep, ruddy, conditions again this weekend who knows what Argentina will bring but I'm getting I'm going off on a tangent but I just think it goes to speak to two different series two different dynamics uh, what guys are practicing on more than the other and I think you're seeing very specific skill sets being developed by both riders last but not least I want to do a few of these uh, listener emails it's awesome I love the feedback and it gives me uh, just questions that I don't necessarily think of because some of the stuff, I don't know. I take it for granted because I talk about this stuff so much during the week, but I also recognize that, you know, you guys aren't at the races every weekend, right? You're well, for one, you're probably able to enjoy your weekend at home, which I'm jealous of, but you're also not, uh, just immersed in this sport. Like some of us are. So it keeps me grounded as far as realistic questions and topics to cover. And, uh, you know, Jason Wygant's always been on me about that is 
I assume that people know things that sometimes they don't just because they haven't heard it or hasn't, it hasn't been explained to them. So I really appreciate that. And it, it sends me down a path that a lot of times I just haven't thought of before. So, so I have a question from Spencer here. He's saying that you hear a lot about social media and how riders are becoming more marketable than, you know, on social media than just the results. And he's wondering if an apparel brand, I'm sure he's asking because of my involvement with fly racing. If I thought their value could surpass their value to an OEM because of their, you know, social media presence or fan following. So to me, I immediately thought of Chad Reed, right? If you look at his program right now, he's, he's on a white motorcycle basically because Honda, uh, didn't step up and, and give him a bunch of money or a bunch of bikes. And I think they were still working out some sort of support program. I don't know where that's at, but I know it was still being talked about, but the simple fact is he's paid a lot of money by his apparel brand that he's sponsored by. And there are other brands that he's sponsored by that pay him a lot of money where Honda doesn't pay him anything, right? There's, I don't think they're giving him any, any dollars at all. So that's a perfect example of a guy that has a huge following, huge social media presence. You know, I think he has upwards of a million followers on Instagram. So those brands see big value in that and they're paying way more than an OEM would. And yes. So to answer your question, I don't think you necessarily have to be a podium level guy. You don't have to go out there and win everything. Uh, another guy that jumps out to me is a guy like Adam Entignap, right? His results aren't good. He just made his second main event of the season, but fans love him. He's very, very engaging and active and he helps, uh, you know, get, get product onto customers and into customers' hands. People want to be associated with things that Adam are doing. And I've, I've seen it firsthand, obviously fly racing sponsored Adam for a long time. We currently don't, but that was a big part of our process with him too. Is like, Hey, yeah, we'd love for you to do better on the, on the racetrack, but fans love you. And that's why we want to be involved with you too. So good question from Spencer. Uh, it's definitely a changing landscape as far as that goes. The social media side is more valuable than ever. I will say though, that results still conquer all, you know, look at Eli Tomac, right? His social media presence is not great. Blake Baggett really either. They're trying to get better. I know sponsors push them. I know firsthand sponsors push them to try to get more active, but fans are not following those guys or are watching or cheering for those guys because of their social media prowess. They're following and cheering for them because of how great they are on a racetrack and what they do on Saturday nights. So it is changing. It is becoming, you know, the social media thing is becoming a viable, uh, value meter per se, but results are still going to, uh, to win the day. If, if, you know, all things considered, uh, another question comes from Jarrett. I appreciate it. Jarrett. Uh, he's asking about, uh, the Rocky mountain KTM team. They're wearing a different brand of goggles this year and they're sponsored by hundred percent goggles this year. And they've been longtime Scott goggles team. And yeah, just things happen, right? Budgets change and marketing focuses shift. Um, anyways, he's wondering, is that awkward because uh, WPS does not distribute 100% goggles? And the short answer is kind of yes. I mean, it, it does create challenges. I don't think it's um, the ideal scenario for everyone. But at the end of the day, 
everyone has to put their big boy pants on and look at the big picture and the team needs to go racing and a hundred percent stepped up when others were not able to. So credit to a hundred percent, you know, those guys, Charles Castle and Cuzo and Bebo and all those guys over there, they got the deal done. They saw value in the team and yeah, it's just how it goes sometimes. Uh, to me, it's no different than, you know, a guy like Justin Brayton, right? I would love for him to wear a formula helmet, but he has a very long standing relationship with another helmet brand. Okay. We, we deal with it. We move on. Josh Grant was the same scenario for us at fly racing. We're not going to make it a situation where it's a deal breaker. We don't want to be those. We don't want to do that. Right. We don't want to make it a, um, a negative situation where riders having to choose. Yes. We would love to wear a form for them to wear a formula. And by all means, if that opportunity presents itself, like Chris Kiefer example, Chris Kiefer switched over to a formula this year, but first and foremost, we told Chris as a company, we only want you to do this. If you're all in, right. We want you to be a believer. And if you're going to wear the formula, we want you to do so because you believe in the technology and you want to be able to spread that message. And it's no different for the other guys. If they came to us and said, Hey, I'm ready to make the switch. We would make the switch with them. We'd find budget and, and whatever considerations had to be done. So there are a lot of unique situations like that in the sport that are they ideal always? No. Do we find solutions and common sense approaches to them where everybody wins and something we can live with? Yeah, that's, that's really the, the end all be all goal is just, you know, everybody's happy or at least satisfied and you know, it's an acceptable deal. Uh, last question I'm going to cover is, uh, John has a question about MXGP. He's asking about the, uh, the MX two rule moving up. And I kind of covered this earlier, but it's basically a 23 under 23 age rule. So once you hit 24 years old, you're gone. And, uh, it's created an absolute glut in the MX one class. I mean, if you look at the starting list today for Matterly, it was unreal. I just looked down the list of talent and guys like Adam Sterry and Calvin Vlanderen and these guys that were MX two stars last year. Uh, yeah, they were battling for like 20th today. They, they weren't even getting points at times, you know? So it's really difficult for some of these guys to have a job to keep a ride. Thomas Covington is another guy that falls into that category. You know, he made his re-entry into the, uh, the MXGP MX two series. Obviously he moved up now in MXGP didn't go very well for, for big air Tom today, tough day, but I think it just speaks to the depth of that series. And yes, the, the age rule is certainly attributable to that, but I also know, and having talking to them about this, having talked to them about this, this is their plan. They want the MXGP class to be the premier motocross class on earth. They, they want that they're okay with that. And, uh, they want the MX two class to be the youth of the series and it to be a feeder class for the MX GP series. They're, they've certainly got that. And it's only going to be more and more of that. You have guys like Tony Cairoli that are still in the series and they're in their thirties, but then you have the, all these youngsters that are pouring into the series too. So I don't know that I've ever seen a deeper MX GP field than we have right now. 
Um, there are a few unknown guys in there that, you know, a lot of people stateside probably don't know. Um, yeah, they struggled, but they're, they're really talented guys, guys like Ivo Monticelli and Iker Larinaga and just guys that have weird names that Americans are not going to identify with, but I know who these guys are and I've watched them race a lot and they haul ass, pardon my language, but they're really good. And it, it, if you go through the list of MX2 guys, I mean, even guys like Sean Simpson, who are, they're you know, well-known guys in MXGP, they're having a tough go over there getting points and finding real support because there are so many guys who all need rides and sponsors. Um, so great question from John. Uh, it's just one of those things where as the U S gets more, uh, you know, comfortable and more familiar with the, the MXGP series, you know, you're going to, these questions are going to come up. So I have no issue, uh, diving into some of that stuff. The last question, uh, we're going to cover for today is from Aaron he says, uh, you know, in the rhythm section in Atlanta, those guys were tripling out of the corner and then tripling onto the tabletop and then stepping off. He's just asking how hard is it to time uh, that section where you're tripling onto a tabletop. And it's tough, but honestly, not as difficult for those guys as you would think. Because what happens is they triple out of that corner and they have so much momentum when they land that they really don't even have to gas it. Um, you almost just kind of let the bike roll and you apply gas a little bit, but it's more of just maintaining momentum. And once you get the timing for it, it's pretty easy. Um, the most challenging part of it is, is not jumping too far. You almost have to hold yourself back because the worst possible thing that can happen is if you jump just a tad too far and you land on the edge of the downside, you don't downside it, but you don't land on the flat either. So you basically case the downside of it and that sends you directly into the the next single in an endo and that usually ends up in a big crash we've seen that happen with guys i think that's what cunningham may have done um he was down in the main event right in that spot i saw justin brayton break his leg doing that uh several years ago um and i believe it was in san diego he just did that exact thing jumped a little bit too far cased the landing and then that just propelled him into the next single so you definitely don't want to do that um so to answer your question most easily, it's, you almost have to check up more than, you know, jump further. It's almost, uh, just make, making sure you don't get ahead of yourself because if you come up a little bit short, it's not a huge deal. You're probably not going to crash and you can most times even still step off. But if you go long, that's a really, really dangerous spot to be in. One side note of that, uh, Justin Brayton had a pretty cool line in the main event where he just said, forget it. I'm really sick of stepping off this thing. He just started jumping to the downside and then he was singling into the corner. So that was pretty cool. And that's, that's a typical move from Brayton. He usually is very innovative, uh, with the track. If there's some big quad or some huge triple that guys are very iffy on, he's usually one that pulls it out first or will continue to do it when everybody else pulls the plug on it. He's just super, super skilled with big jumps like that. So when I saw him do it, I was like, yep. Uh, just immediately it was like kind of nodding my head as like, that's a move he generally does. And it was pretty cool to watch. I don't think it was all that difficult because the guys had so much momentum. It was really just accelerating off the takeoff to get to the downside. But it was one of those things where it wasn't an obvious solution to a situation. You had to kind of keep an open mind about how the track was deteriorating. And you're always looking on a track like that. You're always looking for, where is the line no one's hitting? You know, where is the track still fresh? Where can I avoid the ruts and stay out of all these bumps and, and 
just avoid the nastiness of the track. Well, for Brayton, he knew if he went all the way to the downside where virtually no one was landing, it was going to be perfectly smooth there. So that's just him being very, uh, I guess just crafty in the race and not getting tunnel vision about the race and not just going into the main line, which so many guys do, right? They just fall into the main line over and over and over. And even when it's completely blown out, they just stay in it because they're not using their head. And Brayton is, is one of those guys where he's always thinking out there and he's always looking for a faster way or an easier way to approach the track. So that was a cool, cool thing to watch, uh, in the moment, but that'll do it. Uh, I want to just answer those few questions I got. Thanks for everybody for listening. Uh, thanks to all the sponsors again. Um, you know, every weekend I'm at these races and I get to see a new group of people every week, which is cool. And the people that are just like, love the podcast. I, it blows me away because I've been a part of, you know, the Pulp MX stuff for so long and for this thing to just kind of be my baby at this point. And, you know, I'm solely responsible for it being, you know, average or terrible, uh, maybe even good one day, uh, that goes a long way for me and, and my motivation to keep improving this thing. So next week's Daytona, <clears throat> I'm actually probably going to record this from Vegas next Sunday, I go straight to Vegas to be on the pulp show, uh, after Daytona. So I'll probably record it in Vegas and maybe, maybe I'll even drag Steve Mathis onto it for a bit. So thanks everybody. And we will, uh, we'll talk to you in a week. See you.